Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We have a very special guest today, Chris Eigeman, who is has many credits to his name. One of them is that he was a regular on season four of Gilmore Girls, where he played one of Lorelai's paramours, Jason Stiles, also known as Digger, a camp pal turned adult romantic partner, um, slash business partner slash foe of her father, I think, um, and who also appears in the reunion, and who also is a listener to this show. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. I've, I'm thrilled to be here. I've envisioned the studio many times like this and you know Marin's garage are the two places in my mind like what does that look like how does the studio look like what you thought it would look like it doesn't i i i don't know i think what i thought was there would be a like really well-thumbed thesaurus in the middle of the table <laughs> and the remnants of of steve's split babies in the corner and but no and, and, I, and a gamelon right um and also i you know, the fact, Julia, that you're knitting during this is I saw you in the control room and it's it's fantastic. I will confess I don't knit. I'm making hats for my kids and I brought knitting for the first time last week because it's kind of like a focusing listening agent, actually. But I have not been knitting. You don't have to retcon knitting into like <laughs> however many years of listening to the show. Although the skill set's high because you can't you can't have needle clicking. Yeah, Ben assures me that the needle clicking isn't ending up on the tape. We'll see if the if if avid listeners can hear it uh, in our Moana segment from earlier today. I should note before we commence that we're also we've pulled Seth Stevenson back into the room uh, for this segment so that he can also interrogate Chris about his Gilmore days. So excited to be here! <laughs> uh, and you know, we uh, I think we may also talk a little bit about the the contested final words of the series, potentially. Just before we start, it's important to to sort of say that I'm just an ambassador for the show because I'm really not in the the Netflix four episode thing. I mean, I'm in it for a second. You make I'm a not, vital cameo. I, I make, if there is such a thing as a vital cameo, perhaps <laughs> I make it, but I am, I'm really, you know, I'm, I love, obviously these people I sort of consider family, so I'm happy and enjoy talking about it, but I don't want to, you know, put the perception out there that I'm much in the Netflix. Look, Chris is the star of, <laughs> of the four reunion shows. If you haven't seen it yet, this is the spoiler. Um, no, I mean, I, the show takes great care to bring back all of the characters who had key roles in the show. And one thing I wanted to ask you about while we have you here is just the what it's like, like this this whole, you know, for for all of pop culture, basically, if a beloved thing went away, it didn't come back. You could go back and watch the VHS of it. Maybe they did a remake and butchered it. There was a reboot like that began to happen at some point 20 or 30 years ago. But this notion of just my cult show died and then I revived it via Kickstarter or through just the economics of peak TV and Netflix needing to make things that are going to make people keeping paying, make people keep paying eight bucks a month or whatever it is. Um, somehow Gilmore Girls takes on new life. So I just want to know what that's like for you as someone who was a regular on one season, you know, we weren't in it for the entire run. Like, what was it like to hear rumors of this project to get the call that you were in it for a, a bit? Like, how, how did that all go? How did that feel? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm certain I'm still in touch and friends with Amy Sherman Palladino and, and Dan Palladino and, and Lauren also. So I had heard that this was that this was happening. And I also think it was um, incredibly difficult, just 
structurally to get all of those people, not, not like me, but, you know, get Lauren, get all of the key cast members together. Also, you had the passing of Ed Herman, which, you know, that I think also obviously influenced the structure of how, of how it was going to work. So it, it just seemed Herculean to me more than anything else and fantastic. I mean, um, the fact that, that that show has such currency is, is kind of spectacular that it could actually come back. Now, my experience as, as Digger, you know, Digger had his champions, but I was, Digger was much reviled. I mean, in a good spirited way because Digger was in the way of Luke. So I had, you know, many, 16-year-old girls just scowl at me as I would go through the airport or whatever or ask like how many episodes my contract was for <laughs> and to be sort of disliked by that demographic can be um and then of course they grow up and they continue to scowl at you even <laughs> long after the show so part of me also thought like oh I guess this will be an opportunity to be scowled at some more <laughs> although you behave yourself quite well in the finale I thought so too I dressed up <laughs> Did you um were you, when you heard that it was a go were were you certain you would be in it or did it become clear at some point that they were going to bring back all the people who had had key roles Oh I I said you know I'll be there if if you want I mean there'd be no doubt I would show up and 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 be in it um you know I I I since the scowling 16 year olds notwithstanding I loved doing that show I thought it was an incredibly fun year so, yeah, I mean, I was glad and, and thrilled to be able to see all those people again. Also, what was amazing is they rebuilt all those sets have been destroyed. Like they, they weren't in storage anymore. So they rebuilt all of them, but they, the scale was just slightly off. And so you'd go, like the only set I really saw that was lit was the house where the, Emily uh, and yeah, where the funeral or where the, the reception was. And it, it, it looked, right but it didn't look right like everything felt weirdly off like everything felt like three inches too big in some places and the scale was strange it was really it was it was interesting and disorientating i yeah, was that's eerie I, oh sorry go you, ahead you i go have ahead. a question whenever okay um chris welcome to the show this is a great pleasure uh for especially for me because we're friends it's, it's just awesome <laughs> to have you on the show and for me as but well. here's a question uh i'm dying to ask which is that um Watching Gilmore Girls for the first time, the thing that it reminded me of most was not actually the show, but watching the show Cheers, and that the snow globe world that you desperately want to enter into is is kind of the dominant affect that I felt repeatedly while watching it. What's the relationship between a TV show that creates a super idealized world, um, both in look, but also in the relationships of the people who live there, and the actors who populate it right i mean you're you're trying to make that emotionally true by interacting with real human beings who are also professional actors what kind of connection is there between this this kind of truth you're trying to get at as an actor with these people and this kind of keening nostalgic feeling on the part of the viewer wanting to enter into that world well you know let's start with the the notion of the actor you know, straining for the truth that they, that they were aiming for. I, uh, straining is your word. Yeah, no, straining is what it is my word, actually. Um, you know, look, Gilmore Girls 
for me, walking into Gilmore Girls was a really, I thought, very easy fit. Those rhythms come pretty easily to me. And the jokes, the humor is I, I sincerely enjoy. I mean, I remember the first episode I was on was about the camp it was something to do with, with Lorelai and that I had known her in camp and that at camp she was saddled with a horrible nickname because I had flipped the canoe that she was in and she was wearing a t-shirt and her nickname from then on was Umlots. <laughs> now, I just thought that as as a joke was pretty solid. And so I just loved, I just sort of loved walking around in that world. The snow globe nostalgia thing for the audience, I, you know, there's no way I can address it one way or the other. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like it, it, that sort of received wisdom rather than anything I'm doing. Right. I guess my question is, have you ever, have you ever worked on something where the feeling of the world to the audience was just completely discrepant with the experience of making it? Or do those things tend to align? I have never been involved with a television show that has this devoted, sincere, unironic love for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I do think that the show is or affords a, a real bonding experience for viewers, but particularly I find viewers, parents watching it with their kids. Like, I think that is, and, and that is, that is rare. Um, and I think that is why it has such currency. I think that, you know, that, that moves it further out in terms of, of not only who's watching it, but how they're watching it and emotionally what it means for them to watch it. Yeah, I totally agree. I have a question about the rehearsal process. Well, for TV shows in general, because they have to be made so quickly, but, but specifically for this kind of very fast screwball dialogue, right. I mean, is, is, can you over rehearse or is it the case that you start out speaking the dialogue at a normal pace and then as you rehearse, you speed up? You go faster and faster and yeah, faster. Yeah. I mean, do no. you just get plunged into that? <laughs> it's a great idea. Like, okay, now let's do that double time. Um, <laughs> like a little metronome. Like going language off. acquisition. Right. Yeah. No. The, the one thing that was, I found very unique about, um, Amy and Dan and their sort of process of it is we would have a table read for every episode, but frequently a lot of us who weren't every show wouldn't be in town. We'd be, you know, I've been in New York. Kelly Bishop was in, I think, New York or Jersey. And so we would do the table read with a speakerphone with the other actors. So that, and so you're on the phone acting, which is, kind of a rare and strange thing, but it did really help in, in terms of figuring out what that episode was, how the rhythms went, what the story was, so that when you hit set, when you got on set, we would do maybe one or two rehearsals, and they would sort of be for camera anyway, and then we just go. Were um, the table reads, is that a different table read process than for most shows, like the, the care and getting the... I think so. I mean, a 60-minute show is often referred to as a war without end um, because you're always late getting out of the one before. And so you now owe, you're already behind at the very beginning of the next episode. So one of the first things to, to get kicked to the curb is a table read mm-hmm. where we, they just don't have time for it. But Amy and Dan were, were really, really um, devoted to that table read. And did they adjust dialogue a lot off of table reads or was it just about getting the the thing that was written, getting the delivery of that thing down? In my experience, those scripts showed up um, pretty much at like 95%. 
99 percent. there wasn't a lot um i mean sometimes if a joke didn't work or something that would get tweaked but by and large no they showed up whole cloth You've worked with a lot of um, writer creators who are hyper literate and and very talky dialogue people. I'm thinking of like Noah Baumbach or Whit Stillman. Is there something about your performance style that you think really suits you to that stuff? And 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 the other question about that is: Are there special challenges to that? Um, you know, the first film I did was with Wit, and it was a Metropolitan, and and it. It had a lot of like long dialogue runs and a lot of, um, you know, snappy, very quick dialogue, all that stuff. And, and it went well, but so it's something I think I can do and I really enjoy doing it. Um, and so I, by being able to do it sort of my first thing, um, it kind of set up the the road down you know that that i walked so i guess so i mean that's a really long way of saying yes i think is what i just did but <laughs> you know what i mean um but i think and and for me personally it's sort of about a lot of it is is a long setup to a joke and i really like that if you give me a joke that is just one line i'm dead in the water i can't do it i mean even if it's not a joke if i just have like Everybody's talking and then I just have a line. It, it's not so great. Um, but give me a long run and try to nail that I can do. And I like doing that stuff. So you're not a catch and shoot guy. I'm, you gotta, you gotta dribble back your man down. Oh, it's a basketball thing. It was getting dirty. It sounded to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. I was thinking hunting. I was I, like, is this some kind of guys go like fishing upstate yeah. or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Knowing so little about basketball, I'm going to say yes, but it's it's 50-50 if I'm right. One thing I like about that kind of work and that drew me to the Gilmore Girls originally is just the that that talkiness felt like life. And maybe listeners to the show will appreciate that we're a talky group of people, but that the relationships between people get worked out sideways in a back and forth and aren't always delivered with like just the meat uh, yeah, I think that's 100% true. And I also think that it, it is actually one step deeper than that. I think that um, it is not only particularly in Gilmore Girls, it's not only what they're saying, there is context in how they're saying it. So even if they're just talking about a chicken sandwich, the way they're talking about it tells you that actually what they're talking about is Emily's driving them crazy. You know, it's it the rhythm is its own vocabulary in a weird way, I think. Yeah, the the emotion is not conveyed always through the direct right. meaning of the words that they're saying. Right, and, and I think that gets really turned up with with Gilmore Girls and with Bunheads. Um, and I and I love that stuff. Well, speaking of of the the language of the show, one of the key excitements around this revival is the notion that because the final seventh season of the original television series was not uh, made with Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband was made with a different creator. She did not get to use the four words that she had planned as the final four words of the show, but they are the final four words of this revival. So we can now assess what those words are, what they meant, whether it was a satisfying ending, whether it would have been a satisfying or ending earlier uh, and the rest. Well, we're we're going to stipulate here. We are about to divulge the final four words. So if you have not yet heard them and you would like to hear them first in situ in the revival, go off and watch it and come back. 
uh, and we will get to it in just a moment. But before I did, I'm curious. So did you learn the final four words when you got the script for the revival or like have the final four words, like have all of you known the final four words for 10 years and been holding them close to your vest? No, 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 no. I don't. I found out about it only when I got to set. Okay. Um, so the final four words are not actually said by one person. Wait, let's act them out. I was going to say you should perform them. Well, yeah. let's get Chris as the performer. Do you want to be Rory or Laura? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he's. I don't he's want to Lewis and Clark. The two fans on this should one. do it. All right, do you want to be Rory or Laura? I Seth. I'll be, I'll be Laura likes yeah. fewer lines that way. <laughs> Oh, shit. I, how did I cast myself in this world? <laughs> this sucks. All right. <clears throat> we will reenact the final scenes. I am Rory. Mom. Yeah. I'm pregnant. Scene. Fade to black. <laughs> Beautifully done. Uh, Fade in Carol King. I'm sure Chris is going to whisk me to Hollywood now that I've shown my acting jobs. Um, so, uh, Chris, you first. When you learned this was the conclusion on set, how did it strike you? Yeah, I think that that Amy's right. I think those are the four perfect words to end this with. Um, you know, it feels easily large enough to encompass the seven years that came before it. Yeah, it is crazy to have a setup like that. Like, is there any piece of dialogue that people have been anticipating for like a decade? It's a it's it's a tough thing to land, and it certainly it felt like surprising momentous it does the great ending thing of having a reveal where you're kind of like oh shit what's good like and spins okay. it forward yeah and- you start thinking okay what are their lives going to be like what's going to happen for rory and the the revival does this nice thing of hinting at potential evolutions and conclusions without tying everything up exactly in a bow you get a sense of where lorelei's business is going you get a loose premonition of where rory's romantic life might go um and the the forwardness of it and the echo back to the obvious origin story of Lorelai and Rory was kind of great. You said in a more veiled way when we were not spoiling that you liked it. Describe a little bit what you thought was so satisfying about it, Seth. Well, so the big argument I've seen like on Twitter online is, oh, this was originally the four words were going to be for the end of the show when Rory was 23 years old and her getting pregnant, having just graduated from college would be a very different thing than at 32 getting pregnant, even though her romantic life is not settled. I actually think it's still really interesting for her to get pregnant 32 because she either, we don't know exactly who she got pregnant by. We, we presume it's either the man in a Wookiee costume who she had a one night stand with <laughs> or Logan Huntsberger, her, her long time off and on very rich, somewhat distant, somewhat untrustworthy paramour. Or and couldn't it be Paul, the forgettable Paul boyfriend? It's not, it's not clear to me that they ever slept together, Dana. That's not, I'm not sure. <laughs> but about if that. so, she forgot yeah. about wasn't it. Wasn't the Wookiee from the spring episode? So if she'd been made pregnant by the Wookiee, wouldn't she be like six months pregnant in the finale? I'm not going to get in the weeds with you here, Julia. It's just, <laughs> we're not sure who who the father is exactly. But I think it's fair that that the equivalent of, you know, Lorelai gets pregnant at 16 as the daughter of this fancy rich family and and leaves because it's such a disgrace to the family. I, I, I feel like Rory, though she's 32, not 16, is still so immature and has been so sheltered and her and her love life is not settled that it still is a big deal in the way that it would have been even if she was 23, maybe not quite as big a deal. Right. But. It's not like she got like knocked up by her steady boyfriend before they got to no. s- decided to get engaged. Like it, and it, I certainly interpreted it as she would have the kid and make a foundational relationship with the kid and just like screw all these men mooning about. Well, this is the question. So, so it, before 
that in the in the final episode before she announces that she's pregnant, she goes to her dad, who is not really a presence in her life, and and she says, "Why? You know, she says, did you ever feel bad about that? Why weren't you a presence in my life? You know, how did you feel about that?" And because and and we don't know why she's doing that exactly at the time, but then what we figure out is she's wondering, is the father of this baby going to be present in her life, and what's that going to mean? And does she want to raise a kid alone the way her mother raised her alone? So I found it very a very rich text, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was good. It was worth waiting for. Chris, can I ask you a non Gilmore Girls fangirl question before sure. you go? Yeah. So what are you doing next? If we want some more Chris Eigman on our plates in the near future, what where should we look? Um, the next thing I'm doing, I'm not acting in. Uh, it's a movie I wrote called Seven in Heaven that's being produced um, by Blumhouse that we're doing in the spring. Is that um, going to be your first produced screenplay? No, I did one probably seven or eight years ago called Turn the River with Fonka Jansen and Rip Torn. Um, so it'll be my second. Uh, and it's all about um, – it's sort of a horror movie about being a teenager. Oh, fantastic. Can you come talk about it with us when it comes oh, out? Oh, I'd love to. Seven in Heaven, that is reminding me that I think I listened to Lin-Manuel Miranda in Marin's Garage to bring it full circle. That was really recently, right? It was I, very I, recently. I, I caught up. It was, yeah, it was like the last couple of weeks. And he talked about how I think in high school he wrote a musical called Seven Minutes in Heaven that was all about the pain of like adolescent lust. Yeah, that's that's what this is. I mean, it, it, it is that and then it gets turned it's sort of but it's horror and with less songs it's there's no it's, it's <laughs> much more dante and absolutely no music i mean and no singing there's there is music um of, of course he did it before i did it before, i mean of course why? sorry maybe that why? was a dick move why? to tell you that <laughs> of course of course why hadn't i thought of that um, chris you know what i want to ask you which is what has it been like playing a smarter handsomer version of stephen metcalf in the movies for 25 years but that's that's a subject for the next time all i do is i just i watch and i learn stephen and, I, <laughs> and that gives me all the cred that that i need yeah, why do you, 